I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 43 for April. I'm Simon, and uh, I'm wearing a uh, t-shirt by Katmandu, hoodie by Katmandu also, uh, jeans from Just Jeans, and the shoes are Nike trainers from uh, the Nike outlet store. I'm Duncan, and the best I've ever dressed was with a hand-sewn Batman shirt, and uh, I was three years old, literally when my mother dressed me. Perfect. Yeah, yeah so this is obviously uh, the fashion episode of You've been waiting for a long time for this, I know. Yeah. They're wanting to hear Duncan yeah. Simon's expert uh, fashion, yeah. fashionistas. The finest dressed men in movie podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's seeing as you can't see us and probably a majority of the other people, you can't actually tell whether that's c- categorically false yeah. or not. We're actually almost dressed identically, by the way. <laughs> but, and by that you mean we both look amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Duncan, what have you been watching this month? I haven't watched too many films, but I've seen Edge of Tomorrow. Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers with Tom Cruise well cast as the shallow PR salesman of a war that he's suddenly thrust into and then must continually live through and die through one day in battle until he can change history. Uh, engaging and pleasantly light-hearted at times with gallows humour when it comes to the cruiser dying multiple deaths. Have you seen this? I haven't. Ah, right. Heard nothing but good things, though. Okay, cool. I'll be curious to see what you think of it then. Uh, the Maze Runner, or the... Digestive Hunger Games. Uh, <laughs> what intrigue it is afforded by its premise is brutally stripped away until a last act of revelation that is both confusing and wildly illogical. Uh, the lead actor it seems capable, but his character is just one of those bland heroes you always see. And the female lead is so glaringly superfluous that she makes Bella from Twilight look like Ripley from Alien. Uh, and I think it's one of those films that I was watching and the beginning I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And, like the creatures are quite freaky. Yep. But the longer it went on, the more, as that, that track we always talk about, the more I started to think about logistics of, of things and also how to kind of improve it. And they introduced, have you seen this? Uh, this film? No. Yeah. They introduced this female character in there and I'm like, if you had amalgamated the female character with your male hero, then the qualities that they have would have made it infinitely more interesting right, character. Right. Uh, but I can almost kind of see why they didn't because then it would have really been like the Hunger Games if they'd right. made her... Because you know that the basic plot is the, these guys all awake and they're in this field yep. and there's a maze that they can go that changes yep. kind of formation. Um, and this guy pops up and then he starts um, messing with the, the order of things. Yep. And then this female shows up and everyone's like, oh, it's the female. I'm like, why didn't you make the, the male character, this guy who's the Messiah guy, why didn't you make um, him you know, a female character? Right. Because she would have been an outsider. It would have made more sense. Yeah. People's resistance because everyone was kind of like resistant to him immediately. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's one of those films like as soon as you're watching it you know, after an, after about half an hour, I started going, mm, I would have changed that. Would have changed that. Right. And very much of the old dystopian future. Yeah, of course. Of like all futures. Yeah, with all futures. I saw Charade, Audrey yep. Hepburn and Cary Grant starring this product of its time. I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, screwball one-liners mixed with espionage. Grant seems like he's in cruise control in this, uh, looking older and, and well aware that he's done this film countless times. Mm. It's great music, and Hepburn is charming, as usual. Yep. And Walter Matthau, is quite, I, I quite liked him in that. He's got quite a quirky presence. But everything feels a little forced. 
Yeah, um, right. It doesn't age very well. And this was a big influence on Jonathan Demme when he did The Truth About Charlie, which apparently flopped quite dramatically. Yeah, it did, didn't it? Yeah, and he um, he loved Charade, and he remade it as Truth About Charlie. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Charade is that um, they had put a, uh incorrect copyright on it. So they, they failed to put a copyright on it, so it immediately went into public domain. Right. Yeah. Like, right, so you can watch it just on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. you could even even back then, everyone realised, and so then they just put out reels and reels of it. Oh, it's yeah. shocking how often uh, things like that happen, eh? Yeah. 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 And you can imagine, oh, in some old, you know, 1930s film, but yeah. this is like the 60s with two huge stars at the oh, time. Oh, no. Yeah. Nuts. <laughs> it's crazy. And I saw Citizen Four, the Oscar-winning documentary told as many documentaries are now. It's kind of a detective story. Uh, even though we know the end result, the film builds tension with each step toward Edward Snowden's release of the national security documents. Uh, Snowden appears well-adjusted and, and kind of without malice, recognises the impact of what he's about to do, clear of conscience in his mind, and as so often the case, the messenger comes under scrutiny rather than the message. Uh, it's very well constructed by director Lara Poitras. As events unfold in front of the camera, it achieves what documentaries strive for, whether you agree with the subject or not. It makes you feel what they are feeling in that captured moment. You really do empathise with him, even if you, you know, perhaps if you don't necessarily sympathise with him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very well, very well made documentary about quite a weighty subject that you have to sift a lot through. Yeah. And what have you been watching? Right, well, a, a bit, so let's rattle into okay. this. Um, Sorcerer, 1977. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I've talked about the excellent French thriller, The Wages of Fear. Well, now I've seen its much maligned career-damaging US remake. Yep. Um, having the misfortune to come out at the same time as a little film called Star Wars. <laughs> Might have seen it. Uh, Sorcerer lost a small fortune for director William Friedkin. But the film was flawed anyway, losing the leanness of Clouseau's original by reaching on four prologues uh, that introduced all the main uh, characters, meaning that the tense, drive and explosive-laden trucks across rickety bridges and rubble-strewn mountain roads doesn't begin until half the film is over already. Well, is this like Dracula Untold or something? Yeah. It's like it's, four prologues. Just it, no, <laughs> seriously, there are four prologues. And I was about 20 minutes in and I thought, have I got the wrong film? <laughs> I thought this was a remake of Ages of Fear. Uh, I had the right film. Uh, Friedkin had the wrong idea, I think. Um, right. And yet Sorcerer looks and sounds tremendous. Uh, bright and beautiful one moment and then bursting with fire and thick rain the next. It is, like I guess Heaven's, Heaven's Gate, one of those bloated 70s films that signal the end of a filmmaking era. Mm. Um, still quite enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I remember hearing Friedkin say something along the lines um, to the original director, oh, like, I, I, mm. I, I would never make a, as good a film as Wages of Fear. Yeah. Well, he didn't. And and then he saw him after it had got maligned and he he ran into him again a couple of years later and said, see, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to admire him for a sense of humor about it. But oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like I say, not terrible, but man, four prologues, uh, you don't need that. It was completely unnecessary. It just, it just makes you think about how lean and, and, and tight and, and brilliant Wages of Fear is. Yeah, and it's also interesting, um, just going off on a tangent slightly, yeah. but how many of those 70s filmmakers, I don't know whether it's because they got to make the dream project or whatever, but how it kind of finished them. You know, Chimino with Heaven's Gate mm. and even Coppola with Apocalypse Now. And um, Friedkin with this and Bogdanovich, you know, mm. they're, they're just on fire there for a while. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know whether they get too much um, yeah. free reign or I don't yeah, know I'm what it, or sure. if it's a natural lifespan. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Going off on a tangent is, in fact, the motto of Spoiler Alert. <laughs> <laughs> I followed that up with Evil Speak from 1981, in which a downtrodden military cadet hits back at his tormentors by summoning demonic forces through the use of an ancient tome 
and a primitive PC that looks like an entry-level Commodore 64. <laughs> a very smart Commodore 64 would seem, one that can answer practically any question given to it, which I guess is because it's in league with Lucifer, which is odd since Windows 8 hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, there you go. So it's kind of a carry knockoff, except with Sissy Spacek replaced by Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, and both the hardest-working man in Hollywood, 227 credits. Whoa. Yeah, 227 credits, isn't it? And probably the least attractive man in Hollywood at the same time. Which is a problem since he plays a cowardly, sniveling twerp who's also set up as some kind of intellectual prodigy. But comes across as, as an unlikable dolt. Uh, making it pretty hard to feel any sympathy for him or relate to him in any way. The film is ponderous in parts and seems to have had some of the more gruesome moments excised. And there's still a scene where a woman is attacked in her shower by hungry pigs. <laughs> um, you're not going to hear that often, eh? A scene which has the briefest of brief shots of the pigs tearing into her exposed belly. I mean, it's so brief you'll think you missed it, like those single frames of a, of his own penis Brad Pitt edits into the movies and, you know, Fight Club. It's so brief and you're just like, oh, oh God, what did I just see? <laughs> and you just see like the stray forgotten slither of 80s exploitation cinema that somehow somebody forgot to destroy. <laughs> While I'm on the subject of horrors, it follows. Right. Cracking horror film. The story of a young woman who, as a result of a sexual encounter, inherits a curse. The curse is the it of the title. It will follow her, walk towards her, and kill her. It can take any form, no one else can see it, and it cannot be stopped. Clever and creepy, it follows has an old-fashioned style in the best possible way. Uh, I love that it issued rapid edits and adopted a kind of dreamy, eerie pace, and it could come from anywhere use of the frame that reminded me of John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, also reminiscent of Carpenter was the exquisite electronic score. Uh, this is a really great fright, fright flick, man. Mm-hmm. I've heard that they're uh, already greenlit a sequel for it. Yeah, it's one of those films where uh, there's so much space for a sequel. Mm-hmm. I don't feel I necessarily need one because the sequel will inevitably try to explain away stuff that shouldn't be explained away. Yeah. You know, stuff that should be left alone will end up being, um, you know, something to do with druids or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you just need to look at paranormal activity and see whether they're just <sighs> winding down to some weird coven of witches or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, do we need this explanation? Exactly. Um, the openness and the lack of clarity is it actually works in, in this film's favour. Mm. Uh, lastly, Night Riders from 1981. Yeah. George Romero's film about a motorcycle gang led by Ed Harris who travel around the US jousting. Uh, <laughs> two and a half hours of Harris, Tom Savini getting a meaty role, and the always welcome Ken Forey wearing armour and behaving like medieval knights. Uh, there's even a weird Stephen King cameo. I enjoyed it immensely, though I'm glad Romero cut it from this original reported runtime of 17 hours. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I could have handled 17 hours of this. 17 hours? But but two and a half, which seems pretty lengthy, was fine. I enjoyed it a great deal, actually. How did you manage to do 17 hours worth of... Oh, I don't know. I think you just travel around and shot everything, <laughs> you know? That's longer than most TV series. It's amazing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it's one of those things where you read and you think, oh, is that some sort of, you know, inflated number... Yeah. yeah, But on the other hand, it's, it's easy to imagine that this was like a travelling circus of performance and they just travel and they shot and they shot, yeah. and, you know. When Terence Malick's telling you to cut it down. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> you <know>. long. <laughs> How was your day? Well, my friend Sweet Jay took me to that video arcade in town, right? And they don't speak English there. So Jay got into a fight and he's all, hey, quit hassling me because I don't speak French or whatever. And then the guy says something in Paris talk and I'm like, just back off. And they're all, get out. And we're like, make me. That's cool. Fascinating. Okay, Simon, so what's the news? 
Well, Sean Young has announced she will not be appearing in Blade Runner 2. Oh, no. Yep, and news that made everyone ask the same question. Was anyone seriously thinking she would? And is Sean Young still acting? (laughs) Uh, Well, she is still acting. Busily, in fact. Although I'd have to go back to to a 2011 stint on The Young and the Restless before I I could find a title I recognise. And I guess the fact that she is as busy as she is puts paid to the rumours that she's a nightmare to work with, which is a good thing. And yes, someone has been talking about Sean Young and Blade Runner too. Sean Young has. <laughs> uh, she has apparently been vigorously campaigning, much as she did to play Catwoman in Burton's Batman Returns, I imagine, for the role. And why not? She has the same miles on the clock as Harrison Ford, who will be returning. But I guess audiences apparently are cool with an old men headlining their films, just not an old woman. <laughs> just as much right to be in that film as he has, surely. Yeah, and she was very good in that film. Yeah, give her definitely, for that. definitely. Yeah. Joss Whedon has offered his opinion on the uh, new Jurassic World trailer uh, with the tweet equivalent of an eye roll, uh, criticizing the film's gender dynamics as Jurassic themselves, <laughs> calling them 70s sexist. Yeah. Uh, this has caused the usual debate about whether the director's own female action roles are truly progressive or just the Emperor's new spandex. Uh, but what is most interesting is that the Avengers helmet is going after another blockbuster franchise, and one that stars the ubiquitous film star du jour and Marvel movie stablemate Chris Pratt. Mm. I thought yeah. that was quite interesting. Also noticed that you just posted about um, Ant-Man. Yes. The Winnegar Wright left uh, the role uh, yeah. of directing. Yeah. He, uh, Joss Whedon posted a picture of himself uh, with, like captionless, just with a Cornetto looking sad. Yeah, he did. And I thought that that was interesting because, of course, that's a Marvel um, yeah, thing well, as well. my understanding is um, he's going to drop out of the of, of these films after um, the next Avengers, which has already been made, obviously. So mm. I think that's his last film. Yeah, for yeah. them. So yeah, and probably they're like, well, let's get rid of him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's the the that's the most modest of you know. Yeah, yeah. That's right. A bit of solidarity, but I did think that was interesting that he was. Uh, you know, I do like that we didn't ex- expresses expresses his opinion. Especially somewhere as yeah. um, that you often have to be as diplomatic as you do in Hollywood. Yeah, for sure. Hugh Jackman has discovered God, or rather he's discovered St. Paul, the apostle who was bigger than Jesus. Well, almost. At least in that so much of Christianity has been shaped by his writings. After all, he wrote 14 books of the New Testament. Suck that, Habakkuk. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you pronounce Habakkuk, by the way. I don't know who Habakkuk is. I'm just going is. for it. Uh, he, he's got one book in the Bible oh, in he? the New Testament, yeah. Oh. So I wonder how much of the film will be spent on Jackman explaining how folks should run their churches. That'd be an interesting read, eh? <laughs> That'd be an interesting watch. But in all seriousness, I'm not sure the big budget religious movie is a good business model. Noah and Exodus Gods and Monsters. Sorry, Gods and Kings. Gods <laughs> and Kings? Yeah, Gods and Monsters is the, um, the, the one about yeah. James Whale, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It yeah. is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would be a good mix-up. <laughs> I know. I'd love a good that, yeah. <laughs> I don't think either of those films set the world on fire critically or commercially. And they had big-ass CGI pedigree in the destruction of the world and the destruction of, of a sizable portion of the Middle East. St. Paul has Jackman writing letters to the Corinthians. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's got the same level of spectacle. It seems like a tough sell, and maybe one better uh, left to the lower-budget end of the faith-based film market, mm. which seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah, that's, an, that's a curious one to go for, isn't it? Especially for Hugh Jackman. I mean, you can see why someone would make a film about it, but maybe not... Uh Big budget one. Yeah, it, well, I, I'm assuming it's big budget just because it's got Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a, a small-scale film or one of those, um, you know, History Channel series, potentially. Yeah. I'm not saying it wouldn't be an interesting topic because it probably would be. Yeah. But um, a feature film with Hugh Jackman? Yeah. Wolverine? Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how reverent it is, whether it's critical or whether it's, uh, you know, 
because Shane Paul's a very divisive character. Well, Daniel Radcliffe is rumoured to be cast in Grand Theft Auto. Uh, but unfortunately, it won't be Harry Potter and the Murderous Rampage with a stolen Lamborghini while on three stars and running over poorly rendered senior citizens like it's Death Race 2000 Part 1. Instead, it's about the creators of the game and phenomenon, Britain's Sam and Dan Hauser, being taken to court by Jack Thompson, no, not the Aussie actor, but an American who fought violence in the gaming industry. Yeah, that could be quite yeah, interesting. Yeah, I read that and thought, really? And yeah. then, oh, okay, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, Grand Theft Auto, this is yeah. going to be like... Crank times a thousand. Or the remake of the Ron Howard film. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw that, I saw Daniel Radcliffe and Grand Theft Auto. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, there's such clickbait headline when you actually yeah, get into it. Yeah, yeah, But the idea of that, I mean, in all honesty, Crank is the closest I've ever seen to yeah. approximation of what Grand Theft Auto essentially is. And also, as far as casting goes, it's like when you see Elijah Wood shop in Sin City. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's that sort of crazy casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can just imagine like Harry Potter just like, yeah, mutilating people. Yeah, exactly. Just knocking people down left, right, and <laughs> Which actually leads nicely into my last piece of news. George Miller has already turned me into an overexcited, gibbering wreck with a series of trailers for the wild-looking Mad Max Fury Road. Now he has heightened my already ridiculous levels of enthusiasm by revealing that Tom Hardy has been locked down for three more Max films. Wow, three yeah, more. three more. Hardy has described the finished Fury Road as effing unbelievable. So my excitement builds... But here's the thing, though. I'm not excited for an endless delving into the into the recalibration. That's yep, what we're calling that's it. That's right. Yeah. Into the recalibration of the Mad Max cinematic universe. Mm. Uh, but the fact that everyone is this keen to contracts at the new Max himself means that they think they're onto a winner with the current one. Yeah. That's what I'm excited about. I could care less about sequels. I just want Fury Road to be amazing. If it is, if it is, then maybe we can start dreaming of further madness and mayhem down the road. But for now, all this positive chatter is just starting to make me even more of a believer. Yeah, I can't wait for Mad Max Evolution and Mad Max The Beginning. Yeah, the yeah. origin story of Mad origin, Max. Yeah, that'll be great. Well, yeah, it has been a month of enticing trailers, like you say, from the exhilarating Mad Max Fury Road to the squirm-inducing Human Centipede 3, hopefully subtitled The Very Hungry Human Centipede. Um, but personally, the one for me was Spectre. Uh, the new Bond film teaser keeps its cards close to its chest, not a hint of action, mainly because I think they're still filming it, <laughs> but plenty of mystery. And uh, although the current Bond royalty combination of Daniel Craig and Sam Mendes means that this film will be good, it is frustrating for the fourth film in a row to have yet another personal slant to the mission, uh, suggesting a continuation of the aftermath from Skyfall and Quantum of Solace. Uh, it is slowly eroding all of Bond's enigmatic history away. Uh, I prefer to think of him as the ultimate warrior from Parts Unknown. Yeah, I do like the trailer, though. I like the fact it's got no action. Yeah, It's yeah. not doing a big over-the-top bloated, you know... Um, yeah action fierce. It's just kind of moody, and I, I like that about it. Yeah, no, I really like the I like the lack of action, and I like the, the mood of it. Uh, it was just the idea of there's some kind of hints. I've, I've been trying my best, ironically enough, being on a podcast called Spoiler Alert, I've been trying my best to avoid spoilers. So, um, I don't really know much about it, but even that trailer suggests uh, there's a personal slant to this, and I'm like, yep. I kind of wish he would just go into M's office, get a, a job, and then you know go off and do it. Um, but I guess you know it's the it's the the recalibration after Casino Royale has lent itself to being that. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm just yeah. wondering. I guess my point is I'm wondering when that personal um, you know emotional investment of the character is going to end, and he's just going to yeah. be a, a spy on a mission. Tell me what happened in the subway with Leonard Marky. <laughs> Who's Leonard? <laughs> he's the man. 
And now it's time for No Comps, the part of the uh, podcast where we go out and review a new film. And, and this month, the film was Dior and I, directed by Frederick Ching and starring real people. Rafe Simons, Peter Muller, Monique Bailey and Florence Shehey. IMDb will tell you that it stars Marianne Cotillard and Sharon Stone, but that's rubbish. <laughs> uh, for about 10 seconds. Yeah, and no lines as far as I can remember. Yeah. Legendary clothing label Christian Dior appoint a new artistic director, Rafe Simons, and give him just eight weeks to design and create his first collection for the famous fashion house. With time and expectation pressing against him, he has a team of dressmakers to collaborate with, led by two very differing seamstresses and the ever-present enigma of Christian Dior himself to live up to. I just want to say right away, I feel a bit cheated here. I thought we were going to see Dio and I, a documentary about the legendary metal vocalist and one time Black Sabbath frontman. So I feel a bit gypped. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> it wasn't metal as much as I expected, eh? Yeah. They could have at least put like rainbow on the soundtrack or something. I know? love the fact that also that you tripped up over the word seamstress. Yeah. Uh, none of the foreign names. Yeah. They're, they're just seamstress. <laughs> well, I've, 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 this, I've, we've got plenty of time. We've got time, you. yeah. You, you won't be disappointed, folks. <laughs> I know you come here for the mispronunciations. <laughs> well, well, speaking of mispronunciations, I'm now familiar with the term haute courtier. Yeah. Uh, which means high dressmaking. Right, yeah. Uh, clothing created from scratch by hand, time-consuming and expensive to both make and buy by the looks mm. of it. The film opens with Dior's uh, memoirs, voiced over images of him working in the late 40s. Uh, these self-aware moments are of a reflective man, made even more poignant by the fact that uh, they were written just, I think, about a, a year before he died. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I kind of thought, similarly, Rafe, the, the, the kind of central character of yep. the documentary, is at his most interesting when he is questioning himself. Uh, he's regarded as a minimalist, and his cold appearance only kind of helps compound the industry's impression of him. Mm. For a moment, he reveals not only that he does not like this opinion of himself or his work, but he's surprised by it. He mentions he only read 10 pages of Dior's book, finding it too spooky because he shared such similar emotions and thoughts on fashion as the great man, uh, often at, at pains to point out that he's not comparing himself to Christian yeah. Dior, and then he compares himself to Christian Dior. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, the film's central conceits is it's cutting between the action and drama of the now and this, as Duncan says, the vintage footage of Christian Dior with his memoirs being read out aloud off screen. It reminds us that there's more at stake than just putting out a collection. There's an entire weight of history hanging over the film. Mm. Uh, uh, cleverly, and in one of my favourite moments, when it all seems kind of bleakest for Rafe, and the archival footage is shown projected onto mannequins wearing the work-in-progress clothing of, at, at night time. It's kind of like this whole oppressive spectre of history and tradition now hangs directly on the efforts of the here and now. Yeah. And I think, you know, as if we don't need enough tension, you know, yeah. any more tension. I mean, it's tense enough as it is, you know. Mm. It's as well where good isn't good enough. Yeah, you know? that's right. Um, it's hinted to at the beginning, before you've really met anyone yeah. and all the workers are there, and uh, they're, they're all in the Christian Dior, and they've just got like almost like white, white lab coats, it yeah. almost looks like. And she's like, well, you can't go out in that because there's a spot on it. Yeah, and if if Mister sees that, you'll be in trouble. And you're like, it's impeccable. You can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, I I really appreciate that we go straight from that kind of quite moody, romantic black and white opening with the the voiceover and, and all that footage to the back room and these and the workers, you know. Mm. So it's it's like to, to the nuts and bolts from the romantic, you know, it's predicted to the outside world, you know. Yeah, and um, that, that's what I appreciate about about this film. Um, that we're seeing. Everything that goes on, all the furious activity that goes to make something look effortless mm -hmm. and graceful. Yeah, the film is uh, is lovingly filmed by cinematographer Giles Picard uh, with what I'm sure is unprecedented access. Uh, the dressmakers are the heart of the film, I thought. They're, they're very intelligent, warm, and dedicated. 
Uh, also kind of very realistic in the expectations in their approach. Uh, and, and to see a 42-year veteran at the company still capable of being stressed with the deadline or enchanted yeah. by new designs or amazed with the decor of the premier venue, it kind of makes you instantly empathize with them. That kind of the backbone of the film for me. Um, so you've got easygoing Florence and stressed out Monique, you know, so yeah. two, the two sides of it all, um, who is described, and I love this use of words, as having magic in her hands. Yeah. That's a lovely little, um, lovely little line. Um, Flo's relationship with the charming Peter is kind of a high point as well. Yeah. You know, Peter's the, the right-hand man to Rafe, and he's the guy who kind of, he struck me as the guy who kind of smooths over some of the, you know, Rafe isn't perhaps the most easy man to deal with. His French is bad as well, which is, yeah. but uh, Peter's kind of the smooth operator, who, you know, amongst his other skills, I'm sure, but their relationship is lovely. Um, uh, I love the observation that will never be more because Peter is gay after all. It is what it is. It's nature. Is, is yeah, right. Another lovely wee line, eh? Yeah, they're they're, they're exceptionally French in their uh, <laughs> approach. You know, like even all the people, but they seem very um, at ease with uh, with life. And obviously, they've got this you know this kind of dream job in the mm. industry. But they're all very, um, like I say, very even tempered. And um, refreshingly, the film is bereft of the superficial bitchiness that is, you know, the industry cliche that Predator and Zoolander targeted. Uh, these are passionate, skilled professionals who deal with each other as equals. Yeah. And uh, it, despite this, the film often feels like an elaborate promo film, I think. Yeah, that's a fair comment. And it's difficult to believe Christian Dior would allow this kind of unlimited access as well as just complete final cut. Uh, even if they did, the filmmakers are clearly in love with their subject. Yeah. If one wishes to be truly cynical, you could question, as I did once, I'd gone did a little bit of investigation, the timing of the documentary, because yeah. this is filmed in 2012. Yeah. Uh, and just months after former courtier John uh -huh. Galliano left in a scandal of anti-Semitism. Oh, yeah. Uh, which they never touch on, which, of course, you wouldn't, but... No, yeah. no, no, that's right. So he was removed from Dior after an anti-Semitic rant, not his first, uh, that was more outrageous than anything he ever wore. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, you know, reading up on it, it's horrific. And yeah. yeah, again, you you don't. There's no need to mention that in the context of this film. No, no, that's right. But it's interesting that uh, Rafe has brought in as this new wave yeah. Of you know obviously a, a you know new broom sweeping clean as the cliche yeah. goes, but also because he from what I've seen of Galliano you know like he seems you know a lot more um, vivacious and, and outgoing, whereas Rafe very controlled. And, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. That's right. That's right. He's an interesting character. He's not, I guess, what I would think of if you know you'd line up a bunch of people and say pick the fashion designer. Yeah. You know, there's this one scene where he's unloading dresses or something. He's wearing like jean shorts and work boots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. I was yeah. like, I dress better than you. Yeah. What's going, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> Look, if 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 you and I dress better than fashion designers, is you know, it's a it's a strange world we live in, folks. You yeah. Know? yeah. It's like uh, Roger Deakins not being able to work Instagram. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you're right. I mean, it doesn't exactly dig in. It's, it's not like a muckraking documentary. It's no, just a no. stand back and watch. And I liked it for that. You know, um, I've got fashion as an industry. I've always viewed viewed with some amount of derision. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always struck me as obscenely wealthy people spending appalling amounts of money on unnecessary items. Uh, it's the ultimate first world indulgence. Mm. But I came away from Dior and I not necessarily as a convert, but with a different perspective. I still see it as a maddening and conceited world. Mm. Uh, but it's impossible, at least I found it impossible, not to get caught up in the energy of the people who make it tick, to admire the craft and precision. You know, there's something about watching people who are passionate and good at what they do work, mm. you know, that's, that's really absorbing. 
Yeah, and there is a sense of um, of of alchemy in some of yeah. the, especially when you see what they begin with, and then yeah, you know, sometimes they're just coming with these prints, and then suddenly it's like wow, bang, and you're like, how did it get to that? Absolutely. And I guess maybe the film was missing that element for me because I'm such a novice. You know, I have yeah. no idea, like not even a passing interest, let alone ability yeah. in any of it. So. You know, um, it, it's like trying to show a sport documentary to someone who has no concept of, of the or interest in the game. Mm. You're like, yeah, but there's it's it's kind of this human element to it, and yeah. you can get people in that way. Um, but but I became interested in like, okay, well, how is this done? So it didn't quite get behind the not enough fashion, uh, not enough fashion for me. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Interesting uh, fashionista. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, like, as the people who work at the famous French fashion house keep reminding us, the ghost of Christian Dior hangs over them. Uh, a welcome haunting, though, uh, protecting his creation almost. And to a lesser extent, it haunts the film because Dior's personal story to create 1947's revolutionary new look is tantalizingly touched upon just oh so briefly. I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about him and uh, his history. Yeah. And I'm sure, okay, it's something I could look on on Wikipedia yeah. or read his book. But uh, the film drew me in in those first few moments with his story. Yeah. And I thought there would be a little bit more revelation for uh, the beginner, such as myself. Right, right. You know, as to... Oh, how did, how did it come about? How did he create this? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like I say, you know, I felt embarrassingly underqualified to comment on the final creations, but uh, the emotion that is helplessly released by the usually aloof Simons in the final scenes makes sure the film finishes unsurprisingly, but pleasingly, on yeah. high. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's no surprise it's going to end on a, on a positive, but there's such tension, uh, you know, along the way. I mean, I, there's scenes where I can almost smell the coffee and cigarettes and fear, mm. you know? Um which is why I also like the, the, the lighter moments. Like I say, those sweet little lines. And, um, you know, there's a scene where there's a couple of uh, Italias and, and, and one of them teases the other ones about the fabric. It's velvet. You might faint. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just love that. You know, I can really sense that kind of joy and, you know, um, and, and the sadness when it has to stop. They actually say, You'll, I'll be sad when it stops, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it's interesting as well when there's, there's, uh, there's a point where um, there's the, uh, the Italian guy speaking to the French woman and he's speaking English she doesn't really understand English and so it's having to go through a third translator yeah. so it's like all these different people speaking oh. but they're still collaborating but you can see because uh, that's Monique and of course she is the uh, uptight one yeah. and you can see the tension and you yeah. can see why because she's like she already kind of knows what he's saying but she's having to wait for this translation there's that yeah. point where where he he says oh you're gonna have to create a whole new dress and you can see the guy scared to tell her and she's like what what did he say and he's like and, and he's going, oh, he doesn't want to translate. And because uh, the Italian guys just said, you have to make a new dress, then yeah. walked away. Yeah. And so this guy's just to translate into French, like you have to make a new dress. And I like that moment. You could see that written all over her face. Yeah. Um, yeah. The question for me becomes is it entertaining? And I'd say yes in a, in a breezy, charming way. You know, kind of for me, like a total ignoramus, didn't quite offer enough insight into the inspiration and the process of the fashion design world. Mm. But I don't think it's trying to. It's the same thing as not telling the Christian Dior his whole yeah. uh, history. It's, it's just like little bits and pieces. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I thoroughly enjoyed Dior and I. It's a film about passionate professionals come together to produce something amazing. And that's the sort of story that cuts across whatever you might feel about fashion, you know. This might not be my canvas, but there's a tension and drama in watching talented people trying to outdo themselves. That's just compelling. Because the fact is, you go to one of the best schools in the country. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. They can buy anything, but they can't buy 
backbone. And now we're on to the uh, top five. Uh, we've had our share of terribly misguided clothing calls, but fortunately they haven't been captured on film for generations to laugh at. And while there are intentionally bad costumes, no one dresses like Chris Tucker in Fifth Element without knowing they look absolutely ridiculous to the point that RuPaul would be telling them to rein it in. There are also some decisions so egregious in their awful tastes that they stand out even to fashion novices like Simon and I. So uh, here are our five fashion faux pas. We decided to go this route because this is, uh, you know, it's below its fashion film special and much like the E! Channel's fashion police, but with the bonus of still being on air and way less racist. So we're going <laughs> to sound off on the style crimes of the movies um, because, you know, we're clearly possibly the two men in the world least qualified to talk about clothes and fashion and, you know, stuff. And look, last month I talked about loving Robin Hood, and I do. I really do. I've also got a slightly smaller soft spot for the story of King Arthur. Like Robin Hood, the story of Arthur probably has its genesis in a real person. But unlike Robin Hood, there's a whole heap of mythical hoodoo, wizards and mystical bints hurling swords out of lakes that make the whole tale setting somewhat vague and misty, which means that people take loads of license. Even my favourite version, John Borman's 1981 Excalibur, looked like a 15th century fairy tale filmed through a magical fog of war. There's just so much room to create your own version of the myth, which means that there's no excuse for the bland aesthetic of Jerry Zucker's 1995 First Night. Uh, putting aside the obvious issue that a mopey Richard Gere as Lancelot can so easily win the heart of Guinevere from King Arthur, when King Arthur is being played by James Bond. <laughs> you know, that makes no sense. My biggest issue with this film is the costume design. Random rhubarbing peasants all turn up in freshly laundered rags in the apparently de rigueur shade of blue. The knights of the round table wear armour and swords to look like they're rolled off a production line. And most irritating for me are the padded shirts with the little chrome clasps everywhere yeah. uh, that all the knights wear as if they're ensigns on the bridge of the USS Enterprise. <laughs> Where's the individuality, the stab at some sort of historical accuracy? In fact, any sort of historical accuracy. I would take any period in time <laughs> at this point, you know? Or the suggestion that someone thought about how any of this would look and work in the world of this film, because it doesn't. Yeah. It just looks ridiculous. <laughs> Heavily stylized, I imagine. And yeah, but, but it's such a bland style. Yeah. You know? It's interesting as well, you're talking about like the, the, the peasants in it. I remember um, From Hell and, uh, you know, the, oh, yeah, yep, the, yep. the dead one. And it always threw me that they, you know, because Heather Graham plays the, the prostitute in it. Yeah. And she's surrounded by these other prostitutes. And these other prostitutes just have dirt, you know, all over their face, <laughs> blacked out teeth. Like, you know, they just look horrible. Just plague victims. And she looks like, a, 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 you know, a catwalk model. Like she, yep. a, And they're in the same shot. And you're yeah, like, come yeah. on, like, I realize you've got to make it look good. Yeah, but where, this are, is... where are you going to spend your pounds? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, why, do you, why don't you at least correct a balance here? Like, yeah. don't make, yeah. does everyone else have to look so, like, repellent? They have to look like the start of, like, you know, do they have to look like the start of, like, Holy Grail? Like, bring out your dead, and then she's like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. So, so is that your top five? No, no we've not. got just, more, right. Oh, it just, just popped into my head, that one. But it's more makeup of anything. I'm just like, what's going on here? <laughs> Uh, well, you just spoke of um, of Sean Connery, and uh, for an iconic character connected indelibly with timeless style and elegance, there is something horrific about the ultra-cool Sean Connery at his most cool in 1964, and the coolest of all Bond films, Goldfinger, not the best Bond film, but the coolest, mm -hmm. in a blue terry cloth single play suit, shorts connected to a shirt with a belt wrapped around the middle, <laughs> all made out of the same blue towel-like material. Now, this ensemble has become somewhat notorious in 007 fan circles. Connery even delivers the mandatory Bond-James Bond line while seducing a woman, besting a villain, 
alter the strains of the signature James Bond theme while wearing this terry cloth blue play suit. On reflection, it is perhaps an indication of how white-hot Bond mania, and more specifically Connery was at this point, that he could pull all of this off while essentially looking like a Ken doll. Uh, it's, it's horrific. <laughs> it's just yeah, the worst. I tell you what, if I went home and tried, tried my moves while wearing my terry cloth play suit, <laughs> I don't think I'd be getting any, eh? Yeah, and there's actually a couple of cases. I mean, there's, there's like the, there's the khaki sparry suit that yeah. Bond's got, and I think an octopusy. Uh, and there's, there's this really horrible like brown turtleneck that Connery's got in Diamonds Are Forever. It's, so for a really iconic character who you think of just like super cool, yep. he's got some really dreadful outfits. <laughs> if you wanted to make it in the 80s as a psycho serial killer with a penchant for offing teens, then the one thing you needed was a good mask. Some way to hide your freakish features to the third act reveal. Unless, of course, you're Freddy Krueger and your burnt pizza face is a part of your wisecracking gig. Uh, Michael Myers hid behind the terror, the absolutely terrifying visage of a William Shatner mask. <laughs> Gruesome. Uh, the killer from My Bloody Valentine had a gas mask. And Leatherface, and Leatherface well, well, that's kind of evident, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, but no maniac disguise is quite as iconic, quite as recognisable as the hockey mask that Jason Voorhees sported since 1982's Friday 13th Part 3. More than anything, more than the low rumble of a chainsaw or Freddy's fiendish finger knives, the hockey mask is the one pop that has come to symbolise basically an entire disreputable subgenre. But that was in Friday the 13th Part 3, which meant that mass-murdering mummy's boy Jason Voorhees had a whole film to get through before he developed a signature style. And what sartorial choice did Slashdom's most famous figure Fright opt for in his first solo outing? A sack. <laughs> a sack with a couple of eye holes poked through it. A look which Voorheesians like myself refer to as burlap sack Jason, to describe that whole period. Uh, essentially the laziest possible disguise. Jason matches his sack head up with a pair of overalls, thus combining I could care less chic with a generic Hickville redneck cliche denim look. Uh, truly awful, and impossible to imagine that Jason's career in teen slaying could have continued if he hadn't undergone the radical makeover of Friday 13th Part 3. Uh, part 2 does have its fans, whom I imagine are able to somehow overlook uh, Jason's fashion faux pas, but I'm not one of them. Should a kid sport denim overalls and a burlap sack, headpiece while trick-or-treating at Halloween, I'd be forced to acknowledge their exemplary knowledge of cinematic horror and their bold choice, but they're not getting any damn candy from me. <laughs> Who am I kidding? If any kid did that, I'd adopt them. You kid know you're Jason. Walter Hill's 1979 The Warriors contained some great outfits, mm. and especially after playing the video game, which was, was such great fun, made by Rockstar, who did Grand Theft Auto. And after you play that video game, you kind of get to know the different gangs a lot more than you do from just watching the film. The baseball furies looking like the zombies from 28 Days Later dressed in New York Yankee outfits. Uh, they're fantastic. You know, the kiss makeup. And the, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. The wild one inspired rogues and the grubby, greasy orphans, as well as the Mad Max-esque turnball ACs. But the most ridiculous gang is the punks. Dressed in overalls with mixed stripy shirts cheese cutter hats, and most bafflingly of all, sliding around on roller skates. It is a Frankenstein's monster of outfits, but unlike the Doctor's creation, not a single element of them is scary, let alone all of them mashed together. Uh, they are the least convincing gang in the film, and both West Side Story's finger-snapping, pirouetting gangs appear tougher and naturally more stylish. 
And considering they're trying to terrorize the Warriors, uh, wearing what looks like Chucky's dungarees from Child's Play. I love that film, by the way. Oh, um, that's excellent. And, and I love that those gangs are so hyper-stylized. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and some of them, you like, yeah, they're hope, there's the other guys, I think, called the Boppers, and they, you know, they're yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. the James Brown-inspired or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so you've got all these guys, you know, you've got other guys who just got fedoras. Yeah. And it's just like, we'll give, them, we'll give you one thing. It's <laughs> one like, signature thing. Yeah, you've all got shaved heads. Yeah. If you're all wearing camo, camo gear, you're all do this, you're all that. It's over like 20 gangs or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, that, that they've always bugged me, those guys, because I'm like, what? Are, you look like farm boys, but you're yeah. rollerblading around yeah. with hockey sticks and trying to beat people up. And up and down in a subway with hockey, with roller skates on, yeah. it just yeah. seems like... Not not good. No, it's like, okay, you might be able to get down. Getting up's going to be a bit of a tough thing. Pain, yeah. <laughs> Getting chased upstairs by other rival gangs. It's going to yeah. be difficult. I've talked about Lon Chaney's Wolfman before. Uh, from 1941 on, in one sequel and some monster mashups that followed, Chaney portrayed the cursed Lawrence Talbot, fated to turn into the Wolfman during the full moon, and doomed to wear the same pants and dark button-up <laughs> shirt whenever he did. Unlike Jason, who managed to take a step up after his first outing, Chaney never got a chance to improve his look. It probably made it easier for Universal's lazy team of editors to just drop in shots they'd already used in previous films, if uh, Talbot never went to a new tailor. But much like the Incredible Hulk TV series I watched as a kid, eventually you wonder why he's bought so many of the same pair of pants. <laughs> it's, worse when he, it's worse when he wasn't wearing them when he transformed. Uh, and, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Talbot is in a hospital wearing standard issue hospital gown. But after his transformation, he's seen stalking the streets in his favourite Wolfman shirt and Wolfman pants. Did he stop post-transformation and go, mm, must put on Wolfman pants and Wolfman shirt? <laughs> I guess he must have, just as he must have returned from his frenzied kill spree, undressed, folded his shirts and pants, lost still in werewolf mode, slipped them in a drawer and pulled on his hospital gown before returning to human form. Kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, not as bad maybe as 1935's Werewolf of London, which was the, the film that the Universal's first go to werewolf film, where a freshly transformed werewolf pauses at the coat rack to elegantly chuck on a scarf because I guess, you know, it's nippy out. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that seemed a bit iffy. You know, it's a it's a strange choice to have, especially if you're trying to scare people. What the scarf? Well, just the choice of the film director to put that in. Yeah, yeah. Sca- it's great. the scarf as well. It's yeah. great. Like he's and then he's like just pauses, puts the scarf, throws it over the shoulder, <laughs> and he's out the door. You know. <laughs> Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're up to our favorite part of the show, your favorite part of the show, the tree of woe. This is the part where we get to uh, single out a cinematic offender from our month, and. Hang it on the tree of woe. Where it can suffer for its cinematic crimes. So, Duncan, what's your tree of woe for this month? That gum you like is coming back in style, but it will taste like crap. And uh, I know this is strictly TV, but this has a lot to do with filmmaking. Yeah, no, it does, it does. Yes, as everyone knows, David Lynch has left the relaunch, recalibration, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> the sequel of Twin Peaks because Showtime was unwilling to increase the program's budget. Uh, I would have thought this was impossible. Showtime are responsible for some great television lately, but it would seem unthinkable to a person with even a cursory knowledge of Twin Peaks that without Lynch, the show would be compromised more than CTU by the seventh season of 24. That's one for you Kiefer Sutherland fans that, out that there. That place is full of holes. Yeah, yeah. you know, he, he also happened to be in uh, Twin Peaks movie uh, prequel Firewalk with me. He did. But seriously, Showtime are happy to let one of modern cinema's visionaries slip away from the show he defines. Uh, this is more than losing a showrunner, that favoured current term that is applied to everything from Breaking Bad to Doctor Who. Lynch's imagination brought forth everything iconic, daring, and captivating about that show. Otherwise, it would have been a whodunit soap opera. 
it developed into so much more. It stretched and broke the limits of what was possible and acceptable on television. And that was from Lynch. I'm still hoping that he might come back. Yeah. And there's been. I think, that, I think we all are. Yeah, and I think that a bunch of actors did uh, did a whole bunch of uh, video casts yeah. asking him to come back. But for the meantime, until that happens, and hopefully it does, onto the tree of woe showtime. Because if we have been denied a moment as intriguing as the Red Room's first appearance, or as terrifying as the revelation of Laura Palmer's killer, then there were only one set of losers in the scenario, us. So sad. Mm. Look, like a lot of amateur mucking about film buffs, I flirt with script writing. I've written a few shorts and a feature that I will never show to anyone ever, <laughs> unless it gets a couple of new draft setters. It's made in Manhattan too, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> J-Lo just w- wouldn't accept it. Yeah. Ah, oh, she's mad, I tell you. <laughs> I usually write at home on a PC, but I've also have script writing software on my laptop. It's not the most elegant solution because it means I need to copy and paste documents from the PC to the laptop or email myself work in progress, whatever. More recently, I took up a membership at Script, a cloud-based screenwriting service that is pretty handy to use and very handily free. Uh, you can pay to upgrade your membership to get extra services, and I imagine plenty of people do since it's a service used by professional screenwriters. It allows you to write from whatever computer you're at, wherever you're at. And it's obviously great for writers who are collaborating together on projects. This month, I received an email from the folks at Script, and it went something like this. Due to a simultaneous malfunction in our backup services and primary service, the unthinkable has happened, and all recent Script content has been lost. What? Yeah. Now, I'd umdenard about using Script or staying with my old school, everything saved all over the place, wherever I can find it system which meant I lost nothing. But Script has around 85,000 users, many professionals. So this loss must have been devastating, especially since recent Script content turned out to mean anything you'd written in the last four years. Wow. Think on that for a moment. Four years of work gone forever. I don't know if this fits into my same old man rant about the issues I have with movies all being stored online, or I'm just a Luddite. Probably both. But the way this has been handled by the folk at Script is worrying and pretty scary for people who rely on cloud-based workflows. Yeah. Um, so, as so often happens, I've been wondering who exactly I'm hammering up on the tree this month. The script guys seem to have made the devastating loss of people's hard work even worse by pretty much disappearing from social media and making it impossible to communicate with them. As, you know, you kind of imagine they might. But as someone said somewhere on a website, somewhere, because that's what's called doing your research, folks, by the way, <laughs> if it ain't saved in three places, it ain't saved. So you need to be careful from the get-go. But you know what? There really is a villain of this piece, and it's whoever's behind this colossal balls-up, who then went ahead and decided to hide from their responsibilities. They need to have a think about the damage they've caused, with the help of the vultures that will be greedily pecking at their burnt and tender flesh on the tree of woe. That is, like you say, devastating. That's just four years as well. Four years, and you're talking, like I say, 85,000 users. Um, not all of them have wanted backed up elsewhere. Yeah. And not all of them will have a lot backed up. But there will be some people who are in pain right now. Yeah. You know? That's that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was a professional service. I mean, people did, you know, pe- professional writers did use it. And like I say, collab- people who collaborated would have used it a lot yeah. because, you know, you can both log on in different areas and, you know. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Well, no wonder... Uh, I wonder Ant-Man's taking so long to make. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> I think Ant-Man's got bigger problems. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's shocking. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And so that's, spoiler alert, it's very highly stylish and stylized fashion special. Very fashion forward this month. Yeah. So now what was your favorite film of the month? Oh, good question. Of the like two you watched. Yeah. 
I'll say Citizen Four. Yeah, Citizen Four. Yeah, it was Edge of Tomorrow is great. We should definitely watch that. Um, but Citizen Four, uh, especially the times we're living in and all the rest of it. Yeah, he was talking about um, a script based uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cloud sharing, and yeah. a lot of that is to do with Citizen Four. It's a particularly well made documentary. Mm. Like I say, especially the subject matter and how dense that is, and they still get across that you know a very palpable sense of of um, tension and yeah. scares almost. You know, it's, mm. it's actually quite frightening in some aspects. So. Yeah, definitely Citizen Four, and you know, one best documentary. So you know, yeah, you know, there's a recommendation. Sure, yeah, I'm sure most people will, will wind up seeing it. What about you? Uh, well, tough call. I loved Night Riders. Uh, when we think about Romero, we tend to dwell on zombies and gore, and you know, why not? He invented the zombie film. All the Resident Evils and Walking Dead should have a credit thanking Romero. They really mm. should. But we tend not to notice that the theme that seems to link all his films is his countercultural ideals. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and nowhere is more evident, I think, than Night Riders. Ed Harris is essentially a bike-riding, armoring hippie leading a commune of outcasts and dreamers, including tough woman, a black man and his white partner, a Native American, and a gay man who dreams of marrying his lover. In 1981, no less. Wow. Uh, you know, I love this film. Um, it's so much of what his own personal worldview. Mm. I think it's really great from that point of view. But this was also the month I saw the best horror film of the year so far. It follows. So I'd say get down to the theatre when it comes out. Watch it, follows, and maybe try to find Night Riders on DVD. Yeah. Uh, I got my copy from the warehouse for five bucks, by the way. Wow. But there you go. Or you can just wait till the um, nine-disc, 17-hour version comes out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably watch it on YouTube at like 260p or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's a spoiler alert for this month. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Come join us on Facebook. Uh, very impressive uh, picture you put up there of um, of human centipede. Oh yeah, that looks huge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting to see that just yep. sewn together like Dior and I. Yeah, you know, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautifully stitched. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the music we're going out to is, of course, we've been talking about. We're, yep. we're both really excited for Mad Max: Mad Max Fury yeah. Road. And the only thing more exciting than the new Mad Max trailer is hearing Tina Turner sing about Mad Max. That's right. So here we are, Beyond Thunderdome. We don't need another hero. Yeah. Uh, but we do need another podcast, and they'll be next month, so we'll see you then. Right. Out of the ruins, out from the wreckage, can't make the slightest day this time. Oh